Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. The good ship BBC is launched with three vessels, London, Birmingham and Manchester, bringing speech and song to the airwaves with a crew of just a few. John Reith is still yet to climb aboard to become captain of the fleet, but first, those steering the ship have a detour to make to Christmas Island. It's an odd way of saying... It's Christmas 1922, that is. This episode will delve into the archives, bring you as much as we can on the first BBC Christmas. I've been devouring books and sources and articles and web links that seem to go nowhere, but if you bash the keyboard a bit, you can see a little bit of text hiding behind the error message. Anything I can find to compile and curate a stocking full of festive morsels. You can't put morsels in stockings. I'm well aware. It doesn't matter. Plus, we will be casting our net wider, if I may go back to the maritime metaphor, to include other broadcasting Christmassy moments with our guest Xmas expert James Cooper from whychristmas.com. Yes, here with Bells On, it's the Christmas special of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling... This is London College. Hello, hello, welcome and merry listening and seasons broadcasting to you and yours. It's the British Broadcasting Century Christmas special. I am Paul and you'll know, yes, I said you'll, that uh, I'm a bit of a Christmas nut. Uh, In fact, it was while researching for my festive history book, Hark the Biography of Christmas, available now. Yes, hit me up for signed copies. Also available as an audiobook. It's there that I found the kernel of a little factoid that grew into this podcast, really. It was researching the history of Christmas that's led me to the history of broadcasting broadcasting. It was when I was reading about the first BBC Christmas, how Arthur Burroughs was first voice of the BBC and voice of the children's hour and narrated the first play written for radio on Christmas Day that year. Yeah, and then I read of how Burroughs was one of those four BBC employees speaking to 30,000 listeners. And then I read of John Mayo, the reverend who gave Britain's first religious broadcast, which you will hear more of this episode. And by then I was hooked. I will read you a bit from my book later on, you lucky ears, you. But, of course, Christmas broadcasting goes back long before the BBC was launched. All right, this isn't broadcasting. This is a wax cylinder recording from 1905, Silent Night, Hallowed Night, from the Hayden Quartet. And how about 1916's The First Noel from the Carol Singers? These have been sent our way by Noel Know-It-All, founder of whychristmas.com, James Cooper. These are old wax cylinders that date back, the earliest one I think is 1898, which is Jingle Bells being sung, which is delightfully oldie-worldie and American. A lot of people I think are surprised how old Jingle Bells is. Uh, yes, and not a Christmas song. It was originally written for Thanksgiving as well, which is even more surprising. And when you look at the lyrics, they're slightly dodgy. But never mind. So already a radio edit needed, even before yes. a fairy tale of New York comes along. 
So um, obviously on this podcast, we're particularly looking at Christmas broadcasting and the origins of that. We're in like 1922-ish for now, but we've got Christmas broadcasting that goes way back to what Reginald Fessenden I suppose do we that's a Christmas broadcast wasn't it the yes first... absolutely yes I mean one he was probably the earliest Christmas 1906 Fessenden brings the first entertainment on radio for ships near Brant Rock Massachusetts go right back to episode one of this podcast to hear more of Reginald Fessenden recreated for you from there we get the first radio entertainment show which happened to have a carol and him reading out a bit of Luke's gospel and almost instantly giving us the model for the modern Christmas broadcast but let's flash forward to where we are in the podcast story 16 years post Fessenden broadcasting is formalized the BBC has just launched in mid-November so that means preparing listeners or listeners in for radio programs to come and that means selling them radio sets this is from an advert from the times in december early december 1922 give your boy for a start just boys this complete wireless set he wants it more than anything else for christmas he will simply glory in fitting up the constructor phone and listening in to speech music and morse uh, yeah morse as well <laughs> um on any wavelength between 325 and 500 meters beautifully distinct hearing under favorable conditions up to 30 miles distant from british broadcasting stations so at that point if you live more than 30 miles away from a station you know you can largely forget it any boy can fit it up and work it within the hour at this point though the bbc doesn't really have any staff to speak of even arthur burroughs first voice of the bbc is technically working for marconi's at that point he's applied for the bbc job But it's December 13th when the job interviews actually happen. About 400 applications for the four posts of general manager, director of programmes, secretary and chief engineer. Well, only engineer. We're going to go much bigger on that moment at the start of season two, the first handful of employees and how all of that came about. But for now, just know that Reith is made the boss, even though he hasn't got a clue what broadcasting is. And he'll start just after Christmas. And Burroughs is a shoo-in for director of programmes because, in London at least, he's largely making all the programmes. Cecil Lewis from 2ZY Manchester, he has applied for the same job as Burroughs, along with 53 other candidates. So Lewis is made deputy director of programmes. Premises are sought within a couple of days. They settle on Magnet House near Marconi House in central London. More of all this in a few episodes time. But just as we are here to think about Christmas, the same was true of Burroughs, Lewis, Stanton Jeffries, Percy Edgar in Birmingham. Just a few creative, brilliant engineering geniuses in at the deep end, thinking about how to bring Christmas to the airwaves. Because broadcasting isn't just for Christmas, it's for life, but it starts with Christmas. At this point, the BBC has three stations, all under one banner, but still divided. This from December the 15th, the Derbyshire Advertiser. London, Birmingham and Manchester are evidently indulging in a little friendly rivalry, as in the entertainment each is providing, and all of them are doing extremely well at present. How long they'll be able to keep it up is a question. Listening in for half an hour the other night, it was indeed that the London programme included quite a number of foxtrots, from which one may surmise that sometimes wireless dancing parties are all on down there just now. Birmingham put on a varied concert programme, including a speaker. Manchester included a little educational work in its programme, telling us all about famous operas. And nearing Christmas, this from The Times on December the 22nd. A wireless outfit is a popular Christmas present. The shops are full of wireless sets, spare parts and the material for making sets. 
grown-up people as well as boys. Don't know about the girls. They don't get a look in. No, not um, at all. They've taken up wireless with enthusiasm. An efficient set is within means of most people. Inquiries show the use of wireless is rather more widespread in the country than in London. Maybe Londoners have so many amusements at their doors, they are less inclined to stay at home for their entertainment than our country folk. In many homes this Christmas, there will be parties listening in to the special musical programmes. So you'd actually host a party and people mm. come over and listen to this radio, which, of course, weirdly, would now be illegal this Christmas. <laughs> at Marconi House, the London Broadcasting Station, an attractive Christmas holiday programme has been arranged. From tomorrow, the 23rd, until Tuesday inclusive, there will be almost continuous transmissions of speeches and music for five hours daily, between 5 and 10pm. The juvenile section of the audience will be considered first each evening. Addresses and concert items for older people will occupy the middle of the evening, and dance music will wind up the entertainment. Yeah, this five hours of broadcasting was widely reported in the press. It was a real novelty. This was seen as a moment for broadcasting to really shine, much like Christmas broadcasting often tries to today. Knowing that people are gathered in the home together, off work, the family need distractions and something special, yeah, the broadcasters were eager to deliver. So on December the 23rd in London at 2LO, Arthur Burroughs ups his game. It's a day of firsts. Old-fashioned radio voice, give us the listings. December the 23rd, it's the first 2LO Children's Hour at 5pm. Arthur Burroughs becomes Uncle Arthur. Uh, there's Uncle Caractacus, which is Cecil Lewis. Uncle Jeff is Stanton Jeffries. Uncle Rex is Rex Palmer. And it includes Simple Simon, Hickory Dickory Dock, and a competition. That day is also the first appearance before a microphone of a celebrated actor or actress from a current London production. In other words, the first celebrity. Now, technically, celebrities had appeared during the summer. Uh, Will Hay promoting his latest comedy review, that sort of thing. But this was the first celebrity appearance on the BBC. It was Miss Jose Collins singing the Mirror Song from The Last Waltz, which was on at Daly's Theatre. So, you know, get your tickets now, folks. This is the one show of its day. And that was on at 6.30 early, so that Jose Collins could be back in the theatre for Curtain Up. At 6.45, the 2LO Wireless Orchestra returned by popular demand. Yeah, and they're regular from now on. All paid a guinea a show. It's about £60 in today's money. Half a guinea for rehearsals. Doesn't sound much, but that all ratchets up a bill in the first week of £83.13 shillings and tenpence. Which again doesn't sound much, but that's about five grand in today's money. The BBC didn't really have any income yet, so Marconi's loaned the BBC the money for this. But here's the thing. The cheque from Marconi's was signed by Stanton Jeffries, who worked at Marconi's, and he also sort of worked at the BBC, just not officially yet. All of those pioneers had a foot in the BBC, but a foot in their old jobs as well. Pretty handy when you need a bit of ready cash flow. At 7pm, the first general news bulletin and weather report. Which indeed we still have today. Reuters, the Press Association, Exchange Telegraph and Central News, they provided the news until this point. But here it's more formalised. About £10 a day paid by the Beeb, each bulletin was phoned in by a new broadcasting editor at Reuters and it's recorded by dictaphone at Marconi House, transcribed by an operator and then read out by Burroughs. So news just in would mean at least five to ten minutes for all of that to happen. And that dictaphone operator, Mrs Esmond, she actually would become pretty much the last one standing of the early employees of the BBC when she retired in March 1938. 7.15pm, London's first radio talk. Captain Towes, a visually impaired soldier, on Christmas Among the Blind. 
And at 7.30, amusing stories, great election day from Mr Pitt, and a fisherman bold is told by Mr Marks, an old Norfolk folk song. At 7.42, how precise, it's the wireless orchestra again with Colonel Bogey, the Mikado, some music to dance to at home for Christmas Eve Eve. At 9.30, the second news bulletin. At 9.45, more from the orchestra and an entertainer, we'll read comedian, Fred Gibson. The other night I had to go and post a letter, but I hadn't got the stamp and found the GPO was shut. From a few episodes ago, you remember the first broadcast comedian, Helena Millay? Well, she's back this Christmas as our Lizzie. And she's singing. Sorry, I got pretty detailed there. I won't do that about every day of the BBC. But December the 24th, it's Christmas Eve. At 5pm, there's Reverend John Mayer with the first religious broadcast for children. At 5.30, the truth about Father Christmas, known in some listings as the true story of Father Christmas as told by the fairy dustman. That's Arthur Burroughs again, of course, as Uncle Arthur. Yes, Arthur Burroughs narrates this Radio First, the first broadcast drama written for radio. It's written by Phyllis Twig, and it features sound effects. In fact, probably the first sound effects of formal radio, apart from Peter Eckersley bashing pots and pans in Essex. It was the tale of Father Christmas carrying seven tonnes of toys in a plane. Yes, another new innovation. A review in popular wireless magazine said, The true story of Father Christmas was probably the most thrilling thing any kiddie has ever listened to. After a few carols from the Chantry singers, at 9.15, Reverend John Mayo returns, giving the first proper actual religious broadcast, apart from that little brief one earlier for the children. It's quite a momentous moment, really. It sounded exactly like this. It is too early a calling. Reverend John Mayo, rector of Whitechapel, going to give you a short address. I have just come from my church in Whitechapel, a great church situated in the midst of all the noise and the turmoil and the dust and the slums and all that Whitechapel connotes. And it is my privilege, by the aid of the wizardry of Mr. Marconi in this wonderful house, to speak, as I understand, to many thousands of people. Surely no man has ever proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit as I am now occupying. Having preached sometimes in cathedrals and sometimes in the kitchen of a Doss house, I notice one great difference here. Whether in the cathedral or the Doss house, I could at any rate see my audience. Here I cannot. From my book, Hark, The Biography of Christmas, all about Reverend John Mayo. At the time, Reverend Mayo probably held the distinction of preaching to more people than anyone else in history. His hope was that this new medium could continue the legacy of Dickens. The poor and lonely were now invited to the party, with a playlist of carols and a live burst of Schubert from some musicians in the corner of the studio. Now, I do the Pause for Thought slot on Radio 2 Breakfast Show today, and my boss there is producer Jonathan Mayo. Reverend John Mayo, Jonathan Mayo, still bringing religion and ethics to the radio a century later. I have asked him, no relation from Jonathan Mayo or Simon Mayo to Reverend John Mayo, it would seem. But back on Christmas Eve 1922, they finish with a concert, the Unfinished Symphony by the 2LO Orchestra. Well, broadcasting was unfinished, the symphony might as well be too. 
The 2.0 station boss Stanton Jeffries later said, Burroughs and I held the fort, broadcasting with a new game and our listeners, sorry that we were working during the festive season, sent us good wishes and Christmas fare. On Boxing Day, the studio looked rather like the window of a well-set-out grocer's store. I bet it did. Of course, the BBC had three stations by this point. So up at 5IT Birmingham, Percy Edgar reads a bit of Dickens. And as we heard last time, Percy Edgar is a variety agent before he becomes manager of the Birmingham station. But his guest artists don't all turn up. Now, this was common. They were unpaid. But it wasn't common for quite so many not to turn up. Must be Christmas. So Percy Edgar starts to fill in. But in the end, he admits on air to the listeners that there is a lack of performers. So, some listeners rally around. Frederick Warrender, for example, a pianist, grabs some sheet music, hails a taxi and pegs it to the studios in Witten. Mr Entwistle, a singer, grabs his pianist, careful how you say that, and they arrive as well. After Christmas, 5IT Birmingham received fully 100 letters, postcards and telegrams from appreciative listeners. And that was just between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Popular Wireless magazine reported afterwards, As usual, the instrumental work of the Birmingham City Police Band was singularly fine. It's rather curious and worthy of mention that we had Come All Ye Faithful from both Marconi House, London, and also from Birmingham. It was quite a curious coincidence that the same hymn should be broadcasted from the two stations on the same evening. I did not touch Manchester. Well, that reviewer may not have been touching Manchester, but let's go there ourselves. The Manchester station was enjoying a range of Christmas Day programming. 6pm, children's stories, then classical music. Christmas stories for grown-ups from 7pm. Christmas music, 8 until 10 past 9, including extracts from Handel's Messiah and a few ghost stories. And then some Beethoven and Chopin performed live, then dance music until 11pm. And what's this? A fourth BBC station? On Christmas Eve, Newcastle 5NO opens. In fact, John Reith pops in there for his first official duty on his way from his Scotland home. He's just been up there to tell his mum that he got the job as boss of the BBC and that he's well on the road to being knighted. But before he can get to the new office back in London, he drops in on Newcastle to see the station in construction. Newcastle was an early starter with radio drama and it was the first station to have the studio and transmitter on separate locations. Unfortunately, the line linking the co-op stable, which contained the transmitter, to the studio a mile away, well, it wasn't ready in time for the scheduled opening on December the 23rd. So a transmission was made that day from the stable yard. Locals were promised a Newcastle station by Christmas. And even if it's a tentative broadcast from a stable yard with a grumpy, confused-looking John Reith looking on, that promise would be kept. I did the announcing from the very first. Here, back in the day, is the first station director of 5NO Newcastle, Tom Payne. Mr Thomas wouldn't stand for more than an hour broadcasting in the evening at first. He said, I said, but we'll have to have more, Mr Thomas. He said, no, I can't get my transmitter. It'll have to be got ready. And he wouldn't do more than an hour. I wasn't allowed to order him. I was BBC. He was Marconi. Marconi built that transmitter to the order of the British Broadcasting Company who were not yet formed. And uh, therefore, I claim it is the first, it was the first BBC transmitter, and no one can dispute that. And when Mr. Reith came up about three weeks after for this interview, he said to me, Mr. Payne, when we're going to the station, he says, what are you doing for money? I said, well, I'm paying out of the Payne and Hornsby banking account my own. 
and uh, I claim that I'm the only individual that ever kept a broadcasting station running out of his own pocket, and that is the truth. So that's Christmas Eve. Are you ready for Christmas Day? I'm never ready for Christmas Day. Well, back at 2LO London, forget pre-records, it's all live. There's not as much of it, though, because our broadcasters wanted their Christmas days. So Christmas Day had live nursery rhymes from 5pm with Vivienne Chatterton. Uh, she sang at the wireless exhibition in October, if you go back a few episodes on the podcast. The rest of the schedule, rather limited. But wait a year and Christmas 1923 will be much more jam-packed, part of the whole Christmas marketing game to convince people to buy radio sets. As for Boxing Day 1922, the usual Tuesday evening programme sent from the Riddle station near Chelmsford will not be given on Boxing Day. Eckersley will be enjoying some time off from broadcasting and within a few weeks he will be enjoying a very long time off broadcasting. Instead, London listeners could hear at 6pm Peter Pan, as told by Miss Edna Best, and at 6.30 Mr WH Berry sings from the Island King, plus a few orchestral tunes. Ah yes, Peter Pan. That broadcast began with Arthur Burroughs. Hello, hello, hello. Peter Pan will now speak to the children. And then Edna Best delivered a fantastic speech to the children. All too short, said the press, before Arthur Burroughs regretfully announced that Peter Pan had vanished. Popular Wireless magazine published an interview afterwards, supposedly with Peter Pan, about what that broadcast was like, with Peter saying how terrible he found the transmitting part, speaking into a small mouthpiece, no stage, no audience, but that he was glad it came across well. The writer suggested that it was the best delivered, most perfectly modulated speech ever given by wireless broadcasting. From Peter Pan to Dickens and ghost stories to carols, then, certain Christmas classics were clearly right there at the very first BBC Christmas. Here is our Christmas expert once again, James Cooper. What do we need as the ingredients of a classic Christmas broadcast? It's the sort of quintessential family gathering round the radio. You have some carols, you, you have some good wishes. I mean, certainly uh, during the wars, it, it was um, it was the Christmas greetings from around the world from the different military stations were sent around. And of course, carols, very prominent. I know there were um, some carols broadcast on the first Christmas on the BBC. But also, of course, we have the traditional nine lessons and carols. And I know for a lot of people that Christmas Eve is essential Christmas listening. And that was first broadcast on the BBC only a few years after its existence. Nine lessons and carols. Uh, was started in 1880 um, in Truro, but it had its first BBC outing in 1928, which is only a few years after the BBC had started broadcasting. And I should think that was quite a big deal of outside broadcasting back then. So that, that's really the same model of, of the same broadcast we get today, isn't it? Carols from Kings, really yes. very similar to that. Yes, it's basically identical. I mean, some of, some of the newer carols and stuff, but basically the structure is the same. And it's been broadcasting every year from 1928, apart from 1930 for some strange reason. They'd obviously thought, well, we've done it for two years, so we don't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, two years is plenty. But uh, people complained after 1930, hey, we really like that. So it carried on through World War II and it first started, and, and in the 1930s, uh, it started going overseas. And it was first broadcast live in the USA uh, only as late as 1979, which you'd have thought it would have been done slightly earlier than that. But it took sort of a good nearly 50 years before it got live in the USA. And of course, this year, it's the different carols from Kings as well, performed in an empty chapel for Christmas 2020. 
on Christmas Eve at 3pm GMT for many Christmas properly begins with this performance. But 140 years after the first beginning in Truro Cathedral, 102 years after its new format at King's College Cambridge and 92 years after its first broadcast, in 2020 there is no audience apart from you at home. And that of course is the magic of broadcasting. It's an audience of one. Many, many audiences of one. And, and carol services as well would be different this year, if they'll really be able to happen. I mean, the thing that I've added to my Christmas site, whychristmas.com, this year is an online carol service. I actually had the idea last Boxing Day, and I put it together early in the year. And little did I know back then that it could actually be potentially useful as a way of people being able to have a little mini carol service at home. It's 35 minutes long. You just go on there, click play, and you've got some traditional carols and readings. People gather around their screens of a Christmas and they can gather around a computer screen mm. and they can have their own carol service as yeah. as you've as you've created for them. Yeah, yeah, and I know my church is uh, currently working out how we're going to do our carol service on Facebook Lives. <laughs> it's a strange one this year, certainly. Every year I do a comedy and carols show around the country, mm. but they're asking me to drive to Colchester, stand in an, in an empty church... And then the show will be streamed online to the people who would be there normally, but will be yeah. at home watching. But they all live in Colchester. I'll be the yeah. one person who doesn't live in Colchester having to drive for three hours to stand in their empty <laughs> building and go, hello. And at that point, you think, hang on a minute, I'm broadcasting. That's, that's yes. like me driving to a, a broadcast studio and then broadcasting live just to a... But it, I suppose it's narrow casting, isn't it? It's to a small group of people. Did you see at the start, the, um, start of lockdown, I think it was like in Spain or somewhere, um, a, a Catholic priest was doing it in, um, on Facebook Live or Instagram, and he'd actually knocked the silly hats filter. <laughs> so the, the whole of his service, he, he was one minute he had a sombrero on, the next he looked like a cat, <laughs> the next he was shaking maracas. <laughs> It spices things up a bit, doesn't it? You know, well, yeah. it's amazing how so you, you see this journey then. Christmas has taken from something that was originally, uh, you know, in, in the 1920s broadcast on radio, and then now this is the weird, it's still evolving, it's still changing the technology and the way we can actually send it out to people. Back in 1922, Christmas broadcasting seems to have gone down well. The Illustrated London News reported that the invention of broadcasting has immensely extended the power of music to diffuse the spirit of Christmas. The range of carol singers' voices, hitherto restricted to the limits of a building, a short distance in the open air, has been increased by hundreds of miles. This from the Boston Guardian, December 30th, 1922. Our first radio Christmas has passed off splendidly, and it will long be remembered. One wonders what the Christmas wireless fair will be a year hence. It is pretty obvious that we are only on the very fringe of wireless knowledge. Already music is at hand every evening from the broadcasting stations. The new orchestra at Marconi House is appreciated to the full. It was on Saturday night that the orchestra commenced duty, and their programmes were exceptionally good although possibly it was excelled on Christmas Eve when a wonderfully fine programme was set free on the ether. The same article reports that orders for receiving sets are so frequent they cannot be executed quickly enough. As for Christmas 1923, you know what? I think we better save that for a future podcast episode once we've delved into that first year of the BBC. But by Christmas 1923, a new publication had, of course, hit shelves, now a staple of Christmas the Radio Times. One of my favourite little images of the, the very first uh, Christmas Radio Times, the cover image of this family gathered around the fire, but they've all mm. got their backs to the fire, and they're all yeah. looking at this new box in the corner, this radio. And that seemed to be this idea that, you know, in the past, we'd all gather around the fire and that would light up our winters. 
And now, yes. no, we've got this new thing. We gather around this other box in the corner. Yes, and now the box has pictures coming out of it, not just sound. And now we've all got four boxes and we're all looking at our own little ones and you know, yeah. no one's actually looking at one together anymore. <laughs> it's really odd, isn't it? Yeah. Before TV took over, though, radio enjoyed a good decade and a half of often repeating similar Christmas fare. Not actual repeats, because recording shows was rather difficult, which is a shame for archive-based podcasts like this one. Yeah, thanks, technology. But live repeats of what worked last year, that was the order of the day. Now, one of those was a play called Bethlehem. Very, very popular. So here's a little extract from my Christmas history book, Hark, the Biography of Christmas. One corner of local culture on the early schedules sprang from a Cornish church. Not far from Truro's original lessons and carol service was the parish of St Hilary, home to Reverend Bernard Walker and his self-penned nativity play. Walker was an unusual priest who wore a sombrero-like hat and colourful socks and led open-air Sunday services. He produced his popular Christmas play, Bethlehem, each year. It took some coaxing from BBC producer Filson Young for Walker to loan it for wider broadcast. But Walker relented and Bethlehem became Britain's first radio drama broadcast from outside BBC studios. Requests kept coming in, like, you've got to do it again next year and next mm. year. And for a decade, it was this hugely, hugely popular Christmas broadcast. With radio, you could hear the hear the sounds. And even though it was a Cornish village, it, I think, was probably a bit reminiscent of, of Bethlehem, I suppose. Yeah, and it, it also might have been that it you still had people more moving to the cities after the war to find employment. So it possibly also reminded them of more sort of their rural upbringing. This is what it sounded like on my farm. You know, it, it's, mm. it's, it's that connection. And also, I guess, during the 20s and the 30s, more and more people were getting radios every year. And so, people, oh, you know, we had this good Christmas thing last year. They better do it again. So more people can listen to it. And, and certainly Dickens as well. A lot of a Christmas carols, a lot of uh, the Dickens link with Christmas certainly seemed to mm. help to be spread by the radio. The great advantage of Christmas carol is that it can be read in one evening. Because, um, of course, that's what Dickens did. He made a lot of his money travelling around the country reading A Christmas Carol in one sitting in a theatre. So that naturally suited itself for broadcast as well. The Empire Service and the World Service really has, has helped actually spread the British, the, even the London-centric Christmas, you could argue, throughout the world. Yes, because, I mean, of course, you had the Royal Christmas Message as well first went out on the radio. We think of it as, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon after you've had your Christmas dinner, all pile in front of the TV to see the Queen. But, of course, it started on the radio rather than the telly. Britain's first Royal Christmas broadcast came from George V in 1932. Through one of the marvels of modern science, I am enabled this Christmas Day to speak to all my peoples throughout the empire. I take it as a good omen that wireless should have reached its present perfection at a time when the empire has been linked in closer union. So broadcasts, certainly in the early days, were quite close to home, it would seem. You know, to start off with, they said if you weren't within 30 miles, you wouldn't necessarily hear it. But some broadcast innovations came in from a lot further away. Yes, there's one particularly Christmassy one that came from a long way away. In 1965, on December the 26th, the astronaut Tom Stafford uh, made a radio transmission back to base saying, we have an object looks like a satellite going from north to south, possibly in a polar orbit, very low, looks like he's going to re-enter soon, stand by one, uh, let me try and pick up that thing. And at that point, there was a harmonica 
and some jingle bells. And jingle bells was played from space by two astronauts. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know even nowadays if you could smuggle on board a spaceship a harmonica. I don't know if that's there must be regulations against such things nowadays. Yeah, I mean, back then they would have not had a lot of room. So uh, Christmas broadcasting history from space. Clearly. Actually, and one other uh, Christmas broadcasting innovation that we've not mentioned, which I think was around the same time, the Yule log that they had on the telly, the constantly burning Yule log. 1966, Fred Thrower, TV executive, he wanted to give his staff some time off over Christmas. He filmed a log burning in the New York mayor's house's fireplace just for 17 seconds before it looped around again. Yeah. And that's where we get those things that you can now on YouTube find a constantly yeah, burning yeah. log. Or, or also it. on my website, whychristmas.com, plug, plug. Um. <laughs> well, in which case, forget YouTube, whychristmas.com. We should, W-H-Y, isn't it, as in yes. the question, why Christmas? Well, thank you. Uh, Godspeed. God bless. Merry Christmas. Seasons yes, greetings. Uh, have Christmas to you, Paul, and Christmas. all of the, the listeners. Before we go, let's cross the Atlantic with a little more from the Edison Mail Quartet. From 1898 with their sleigh ride party. Ah, oh, here's the roadhouse. Now say, boys and girls, what are you going to have to drink on me? Give me a cherry I'll have whiskey, straight. Hey, what's up? Bring me a mixture and put some mulligan in it. Ah, Patty, let it go. Let it go now. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride. Jingle all the way. Did you see that Steve Martin film, The Three Amigos, with the singing bush? Are you the singing bush? Well, whatever you're watching or listening to this season, we wish you a merry one. We'll be back in the new year for one last episode of this season, a Loose Ends episode answering a few questions, tidying up a few bits and pieces about the story of broadcasting to this point. If you like what we do, patreon.com slash paulcarenza or coffee.com slash paulcarenza, that's ko-fi.com. They are ways to tip, fund and support this podcast. And as ever, your sharings, reviews, ratings all genuinely help us reach more people because we haven't got John Lewis's advertising budget. We can't afford a Christmas ad. So if you can spread word for us, well, that's the best Christmas present a podcast could ask for. Ah, come on, break away. Get up. Till next time, thank you for your company this year and merry listening. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain and or used with kind permission of the BBC and or finding other rights owners in the long distant past is nigh on impossible. If you are a ghost of the person who recorded some of our very old recordings, do get in touch, haunt us and tell us to stop using your clips if you think we're impinging on your mortal body of work. But ghosts of broadcasting past, we salute you and all you've done. Your voices remain in the ether. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time, next year, on the British Broadcasting Century.